Let's get into Psalm 16, and I'll pray here in just a minute. But this psalm is, I love it because it, it celebrates the joy of fellowship that comes from putting your faith and trust in God. And I believe there's no greater joy. I can think of some things that I can get pretty happy and excited and joyful about, but truly, the joy of fellowship that comes from putting our faith and trust in God, there's nothing greater. And this psalm celebrates that. And, and because of what David wrote in the first verse of this psalm, or if you look there, where he said, "'Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust,' we see that David may have been recounting a time when he had faced great danger. That was, has been the topic of a lot of the different psalms that we've, we've read through so far, where David was in danger, he was in trouble, and he would call out to God to save him or to help him. And, and we, can, we can deduct that as one of the possibilities here as well, that David was facing a great danger, or, and I think this is probably the better application of it when you study the whole of it, David could have been recounting a time when he was prospering a time when David was reaping the blessings of God. And you go, that might be a little bit weird context for this beginning of preserve me, O God. But, but let me explain. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that David had done a very similar thing to what we're reading here. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, we know that the, the prophet Nathan had come to proclaim to David covenant promises. Um, Covenant promises that God had made with David, telling him that through his seed, his house, his kingdom, his throne would be established forever. And we know that David was, was humbled by this. He was overwhelmed by this news that God had, had, had proclaimed to him through um, Nathan, um, these promised blessings of God. And, and David responded by praising God and really asking God to sustain him, that, for God to preserve him. Um, but whatever the historical backdrop is, once again, for the writing of this psalm, whether it was in reference to a time of danger or, or it's, 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 it's the, the, the words that David wrote in a time of prosperity, the application of it is radically important to our lives today because it reminds us that the joy we receive from our fellowship with God is greater than our circumstances Hear me again, the joy that we receive from our fellowship with God is greater than our circumstances, whether we perceive them to be good or whether we perceive them to be bad. And in light of what David writes, we see that he, David, in this psalm was convinced that he could trust God no matter what, even in death is what David says in this, in this passage, that he could trust God no matter what, in, even in death, because he knew that he, he, because he had come to know, let's just put it that way, he had come to know through experience, through relationship with God, that God was his quote-unquote portion in life. David will say that in this psalm. Literally what that means is that he's saying, you're my gift. God, you're my gift. You're my inheritance. You're my everything, my all in all. Now, one of the things I want us to take note of is, is the amount of times in this psalm, as I'm reading through it, take note of it, the amount of times that, that David makes a personal reference to himself in this psalm. And, 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 and you've heard me say it before, lots of times if there's a lot of I's and a lot of me's you know, that you're using in your language, you, you, the problem is usually you. You have an I problem. But that's not always the case when we're looking and in, in, in reflecting 
on God and what he has done for us or in our, on our relationship to him. And that's what we see David doing here. And as we see David do this, he uses the word I, my, and me more than 20 different times. And in light of this, what we should see is, is that what David was writing here, it was very, very personal for him. He wasn't writing about someone else or about someone else's experiences or someone else's relationship or just in a general matter-of-fact way. He was writing about it specifically in, in regards to him and his life and his relationship. And it was very personal for him as he tells us about the goodness of God and about the joy as he testifies for us, about to us, about the joy that he found um, in his relationship and his fellowship with God. And I think this is, one, this is a wonderful psalm because ultimately what David is telling us is he's telling us a secret. He's telling us of how he found the secret of contentment and the secret of gladness even in pressing times. And I think that's applicable because, as, as you guys well know, I think we're living in pressing times. We're living in times when things are being shaken up, where there are uncertainties that we face. And, and if we apply that, if we take the, the things that David says in this psalm and, and we apply it to our own lives, I think we too can learn how to be content and how to have great gladness great joy no matter what we're facing and what we're going through. So with that, I want to read the psalm, and then we'll pray, and we'll also pray for um, Pastor Terry and the, and the Nazarene church there. But let's read the psalm here. I'll read it, and you can follow along. Psalm 16, verse 1. David begins, like I said, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. So there's this declaration along with this request. He says in verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave me in Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Lord, I do pray, God, now that you would teach us by your Spirit, Lord. We love your Word. We know your Word to be truth. It's a gift to us, God, to instruct us, uh, Lord, to encourage us, to convict us, to rebuke us, Lord, to show us the right way to go. Lord, we know that it's your love letter to us, and, 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 and it tells us your awesome and wonderful plans for our life and for this world that we live in, and, and, and your plans for us after we leave this life, after this world is, it passes away. And we're grateful, God, that you've not left us in the dark and that you, you teach your children. You want us to know um, about your plans and about your love for our lives. 
So Lord, help us to rest in that again today. Help us to take the things that David wrote down here and the experiences the, he had, God, to be um, instructions for us. And Lord, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters, the Lincoln Park Nazarene Church, and for Pastor Terry and his leadership there. Lord, they've um, had a problem with their building this week, their church building. And the pipes have broke, and, and it's caused damage. And, and um, Lord, we just pray that their insurance company would, would step up and take care of the things that need to be taken care of, and that they would be better it would be better for them, Lord, for the church and for the congregation there. The, the meeting place would be better than what it was before. God, you can do that, and we ask that. And we pray as they're displaced in this short time, God, that they would still find places to fellowship and, and to be encouraged and to be strengthened. And, and that as Pastor Terry has to deal with all these ins and outs of these, um, you know, getting the building back in shape, God, that you would strengthen him, that you'd bring people around him, Lord. We thank you for the other churches in our community, Lord, the others who are the excellent ones, uh, your saints, God, and help us to see them in the way that you see them. Help us to love one another as you love us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at the beginning of the psalm, the inscription, they're important because they give us some context. But one of the things that's unique with the psalm that we've not run into up to this point as we've studied through the psalms is as it we're told that this is a mission of David, that this psalm bears this distinction, this categorical distinction of a mitchum of David. And this is the first use of this word mitchum in the Psalms, and, and this word will not be used again until we get to Psalms 56 through 60, and those Psalms are also mitchums, if you will. And the exact meaning of this word has somewhat been lost down through time, and so its definition is not, is not agreed upon by, by Bible scholars, but most scholars believe that that word Mitchum, and as a description of this psalm, it, it means something like engraved in gold or a secret treasure. And so there's, we, we, should, we should understand that there's, this is a valuable thing, that this is a precious thing from David's perspective, is that it's, it's something that should be engraved in gold or, or a secret treasure if that's in fact what it's referring to. And all six of the Mitchum Psalms, including this one as one of the six, they all have a common thread in that they all end on a happy or some kind of triumphal, triumphal note. But with this psalm, the important thing to take note of is that this psalm is also messianic in nature. It's prophetical. It's, it's, it has prophecy in regards to the Messiah. It makes a, a prophetic reference to the Messiah, specifically to Jesus' death and resurrection. And we know this because, first of all, in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, Peter quoted this psalm, verses 8 through 11. And he used it in specific reference to Jesus' death and resurrection. And we also know that in Acts chapter 13, that the Apostle Paul, in his sermon at the um, synagogue of Antioch to the Jews there, he also taught about the resurrection of Jesus, and he quoted verse 10, and, and also said at that time that it was speaking about Jesus. In light of this, we see that, that, that David praised God for his grace and for his goodness. And in this psalm, what he does is he presents three descriptions of the Lord, three descriptions of the Messiah, which can be applied to Jesus um, today still by us and also received by us in the same way that it was received by David. And I think that it's for these reasons that David calls this psalm a psalm that is a mitchum, a treasure or something that should be engraved in gold. 
So we should see it as something of value. Now, this first description of these three descriptions of, of Jesus that are really um, of the Messiah, are, that really, uh, um, again, define the person and, and the role of Jesus in our lives, is first found in verse 8. And it can be summarized by saying this. Jesus is the Lord of life. Okay? And that's something that we should keep in mind. And look at that contextually as we go through this psalm, these first eight verses, that Jesus is the Lord of life. What life? All life. This life, eternal life, abundant life. Jesus is the Lord of life. And David starts off in verse 1 by saying, preserve me. And when he does this, he's immediately directing our attention for the rest of this psalm to the fact that our lives are sustained by the Lord. He says, I put my trust in the Lord because ultimately what he's saying is, I know he's the one that can preserve me, the giver of life, the sustainer of life, earthly life, abundant life, and eternal life. But we need to understand that this request for preservation, once again, I want to I draw your attention to this. It does not automatically imply that David was in some kind of, some kind of trouble or some kind of danger. And, and often we do. We call out to God in our time of need and say, save me, help me, right? That's, that's probably the most common application in our own lives of calling out for God to preserve us. And in the context of this psalm, I think it's a little different. That this psalm, we see that David's request was an acknowledgement that he was in need of God's constant care. Okay? First of all, it was that. And not only God's care, but God's supervision so that he may ultimately, so that he might ultimately honor God, honor the Lord, and then enjoy all the good things that God had given to him. Honoring, the, honoring him, honoring God, with the life that David had been given. And, and that's what we see going on here. Now, when we consider David's life, we should remember, and I've spoken about this as we've gone through the Psalms, and if you've studied through, through the book of Samuel or, or, or the book of Chronicles, you'll, you'll know it as well, but David spent nearly 10 years of his life, right, running from King Saul, running from the armies of Saul who were chasing him and trying to kill him. And during these 10 years, David had to hide in the wilderness of Ziph, and he even lived in the caves of Adullam. And we know that these were difficult times for David, difficult years for David. And because of these years, David knew. He knew what it was, what it was to be in need. He knew what it was like to be in need, right, and to have God sustain him in times of need. David knew this firsthand. And yet, this was not the whole of David's life. And when Saul died, David was crowned king of Israel just like God had promised. And when we consider 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, listen, we're told this. It says, after, it says, after David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Nathan. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, this is what God said to Nathan. He said, he said, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, speaking of David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone. And, and, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I have made you a great name, like the name of a great man 
who are on the earth. Moreover, moreover, God's saying, in addition to this, he's going on. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of the wicked oppress them anymore. And previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the root, with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you and your throne shall be established forever. And what awesome words that God was speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. And, and with these promises, we know, as you read through the rest of the chapter, that David was humbled. And in and, and, and the rest of that chapter, we're told that David went off by himself and he sat before the Lord and he gave thanks and he gave praise for these promises and for this new season of life that God had given to him, which was now full of abundance. Now in Philippians chapter 4, you guys know this passage, in verses 12 through 13 it says this, the Apostle Paul wrote and he said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, Paul says, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And he said this, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite commentators, uh, one of my favorite old-time preachers. Charles Spurgeon once said this about this passage of Scripture and contextually about what we're talking about. He said this. He said, there are many who know, quote-unquote, how to be in need, who have not learned how to have plenty. When they are set upon the top of a pinnacle, their heads grow dizzy and they are ready to fall. The Christian far oftener disgraces his profession in his his profession of faith in prosperity than in adversity. It is a dangerous thing to be prosperous. The crucible of adversity is a less severe trial to a Christian than the refining pot of prosperity. Oh, what leanness of soul and neglect of spiritual things have been brought on by the very mercies and bounties of God. Yet this is not a matter of necessity, for the Apostle Paul tells us that he knew how to abound. When he had much, he knew how to use it. And in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells us that this is only possible to know how to be content how to, you, how to be in the right place when I am in need, how to be in the right place and whether I have no need. He says that it's through Jesus, right? It's only possible through Lord Jesus who gives him 
strength, meaning the only one, the only one that can sustain his life or pervert, preserve his life, whether it be in a time of need or in a time of abundance. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, it says this. simply says, God alone is good. Right? God alone is good. And the fact of the matter is, is that apart from God, we have nothing good. Apart from God, there is nothing good. And David, who had experienced God's preservation in a time of need and knew that he was, he knew that he was, he was equally in need of God's preservation in a time of abundance, he went on here in verse 2 of this psalm and testified of this truth when he said this, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Everything that I have, everything that you give me, all the promises that I may receive, they're nothing apart from you, David says. And by this, David wasn't telling us about the good things that he had received from God. Rather, he was saying that everything in his life was good because his relationship with God, because of his relationship with God, because he had trusted in God to be, like I said before, the Lord of his life the only one who could sustain him in times of need and the only one that could sustain him in times of abundance. In other words, guys, our relationship with God, our relationship with God is our highest good. It's the greatest good. And it's our greatest treasure because he, God, as James 1 verse 17 says, he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So to know God through our Savior Jesus is the highest privilege in life. There's nothing greater. Simply put, you've heard it said before, it's not about the gifts, but it's about the gift giver, right? And a life, a good life, cannot be defined by what God gives to us. Rather, a good life is the result of being connected to God. A good life is a result of a relationship with God who is good to God who preserves us, and to God who gives us life. The bottom line, the bottom line to all this is that, is that when Jesus is our Savior and when Jesus is our Lord, right, we experience God's goodness even amidst of the, the trials and sufferings of life that we sometimes go, this isn't good. Simply put, Jesus is everything, and our goodness is nothing apart from him. Our relationship to our, our circumstances, to, to other people, and to the future depends on our relationship to the Lord. And so our relationship with God, who is the Lord of life, is what makes life good. It is what makes life worth living for. But God, who is good, does give us good things, does he not? He gives us good things, and in the following verse, David, David writes of these things, first saying and putting it in perspective, he says that in verses 3 through 4, he says basically God gives us good companionship. I love that. In, in the midst of everything that David was promised, in the midst of everything that David had received in this time of abundance, if this is in fact what he's speaking about, the thing that comes to David's mind first is that he says God gives us good companionship. And once again, we see that we're not called to live our Christian lives alone, guys, when we look at verses 3 and 4. Christians are not to do life alone. 
And as a result of our relationship with God and through Jesus, what we've come to receive is we've come to be a part of a great spiritual family, a great spiritual family, and we have a need for one another. And in these two verses, David is contrasting, look here, he says the saints of God, he's contrasting the saints of God, he goes on to say something about excellent ones, right? To those who, he says, to those who hasten and follow after another God. And the saints, I love this, whom David also called the excellent ones, he said these are his delight. And I, and I know sometimes that's not how we feel about one another. Sometimes we're like, yeah, you're the annoying ones. But when we understand that, that, that God meets our needs through one another and that the great, one of the great gifts that God gives us is each other, we see and, the, and then we recognize that God gives us to one another because God says we have a need for one another. We too, like David, should go, man, you guys are the excellent ones. I delight in you. This word for excellent is the Hebrew word adir. And it carries this meaning of nobility. Of glory. And I'm reminded of 1 Peter that we're called that through Jesus Christ we become priests, kings, a holy people, a people set apart. Nobility and glory. And the point that needs to be made here is, is, is that this is how David saw others who also put their trust in God. And he saw them as something precious because of their shared relationship with God. And God had provided these others to meet a God-given need that David had. A need that we all have. And in spite of our faults, in spite of our failures, we as a result, as a result of our relationship with Jesus, think about it like this. God says we're his elite. We're his elite. We are his children of nobility. Therefore, we must also look at our shared relationship with God. We have a shared relationship with God and see what makes us a treasure to God and a treasure to one another. And then we should respond by loving one another and treasuring one another as we see each other as good gifts from God. That's what David says here. The saints are a good gift from God. Furthermore, like David, we must never compromise. Here's the contrast of that, right? We must never compromise with those who delay to follow after, who do not delay to follow after gods. In other words, they, they chase after, they, they make other gods their priorities. And we know that in this life, it can be many different things. It doesn't have to be these idols or, 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 or false gods in regards to Greek mythology or something like that. We can have all kinds of gods in this life that people put up and, and chase after, and we don't want to compromise with them. And in verse 4, David said, he would not even take up their names upon his lips. And this is because he knew that if they were not worshipers of God, then they were not good companions. They were not good for him in the life that God had given him to live. And so David knew that, that, that God was the Lord of life because he alone was able to give him all the good things that he needed for life, a relationship with God first and foremost, and good companions who also put their trust in God. But we need, we need more than companions. We do. And David identifies that for us as he goes on because he also says what we need is a, is a good inheritance, 
As the children of God, we need a good inheritance. And this is, this is what David went on to speak about then in verses 5 through 6. And David said, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have, I have a good inheritance. Remember, after Israel had conquered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, the land was divided. It was, it was allotted to them. Each one of the tribes were assigned a portion of the land, as the Bible tells us, as their inheritance. And this was true, we know, for all the tribes except for the tribe of Levi, right? And we might think, man, they got shortchanged. Well, actually, even though they didn't get land here on this side of eternity, they got the, the better inheritance. They got an inheritance. And in Numbers chapter 18, verses 20 through 32, it tells us that they, they did not get land, and it was due to the fact that they served in the sanctuary of God, and they ate of the holy sacrifices, and they had the Lord, God himself, as their special inheritance. And this is the same inheritance that David is speaking of here. He's not talking about land. He's not talking about, you know, things. He's talking about God himself as an inheritance. And even though he, David, at this time, even though he was not from the tribe of, of Levi, think about this in regards to the nation of Israel and, and what that meant for each tribe, we see that nevertheless, David still saw himself in this privileged position and in verse 5, he said, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You. And the point is, is when Jesus is the Lord of our lives, guys, we can rest assured that the possessions we have and the circumstances we, we are in will represent the inheritance that God has given us. We won't, be, we won't have more or less than, than, than what God has appointed to us as an inheritance. And furthermore, this is the place where, where contentment is found. That's ultimately what David is speaking about here. Drawing our attention and our eyes and our focus back to this, this place of contentment. Contentment and found. is not found in what we have. It's not found in what we're going through. But it's found in who we know. That's what David's saying. And this is what David was speaking about in verse 6 when he said, he used this analogy. He said, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. You ever feel like God's put you in a box? Like, this is, this is, this is, you know, like, this is stay in your lane. We've heard that before, right? And it's like, okay, God, this is my lane, but there's some good stuff over here in this lane. What about, what about that person over there? You know, that's not contentment. But David says, man, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. In other words, what David's saying is the boundaries of what God had provided for and what God allowed into his life was pleasant. And, it, and David's saying, it's not because of how much or how little he had, but because God had been the one to give it to him. Early on when I became, uh, when I was called to take over the church and, and pastor, um, I realized that I had to be here every Sunday. <laughs> That when the doors were open where things were going on, people kind of expected their pastor to be there. And, and it wasn't no sleeping in on Sunday mornings or missing out on Bible study or, or, or whatever the case may be. And, 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 and at first I felt like, man, God, you got me in this little tight box. What's going on? And God's all, God, God was telling me, this is what's appointed for you. 
And, and what God was telling me is that he's preserving me in this place. The lines that God had appointed for me was for me, and it was a pleasant thing. Because not because of what I had or what I didn't have or what I was called to or not called to, but because this is the place where I was sustained in relationship with him. God knew. And the Bible tells us that God chooses the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God keeps me in this place, if you will, on a short leash. Sometimes it feels like it because it's the safe place for me. It's the preservation of my life before him and with him. And, and, and in that relationship where I'm in relationship with him, I was talking to somebody about it this week, it's just, it, 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 there's responsibilities here. And with those responsibilities, I'm accountable to God. And, and, and ultimately, I come to accept that that is a pleasant place. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. You see, again, it's not because of how much or how little, but because God had been the one to give it to him. It what had been appointed to him. It what, it's what had been apportioned to him. And once again, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was speaking about. Listen to it again when he said in Philippians chapter 4, right? Now backing up to verse 10, he said, first he says this, I rejoice, he says, greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. And he's speaking to the Philippians about a, a, a gift that they wanted to present to him. He said, indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, Paul says, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul says it's the relationship. It's accepting and receiving what God has given to you, appointed to you, apportioned to you. And so Jesus is the Lord of life because he gives us our relationship with God, right? Jesus is the Lord of life because he brings us into this relationship with God, the creator who, who preserves all life, who sustains all life. He's the Lord of life because he gives us excellent companions. And he's the Lord of life because he gives us a good inheritance. And David goes on and he uses this second description of the Lord, which can be applied to Jesus still today, telling us in verses 9 through 10, if you want to look there, we'll read it here in a minute, but he's telling us that Jesus is the conqueror of death. And this is so important, guys. Think about it, because if we can, if we, even if we completely delight ourselves in the Lord and in his goodness, and then lose all the blessings of this that this earth has to offer upon our death, what would it matter? If it was all about this life, what would, what would it matter? And what we know is that if it's only all about this life, then there is no hope, right? If in Jesus it's only all about this life, if, if all Jesus has to offer us is blessings in this life, hope in this life, then what is it, what is it worth? There's no hope at all. In, fall, in fact, the Apostle Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. He said, And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Yet we know that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we are assured that our hope in Christ is not for 
this life alone. Our hope in Jesus is so much more because it's good for the life to come. When it tells us in 1 Peter 3, it says, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he conquered death. And through our faith in him, we have not just any ordinary hope, we have, Bible says, a living hope, is what Peter says. And so when David wrote here in verse 9, look, and said, my flesh will rest in hope, He was specifically referring to this living hope, this eternal living hope in the coming Messiahs as he was looking forward to what we look back upon as he was looking forward to the coming Messiah's power over death and the corruption that it brings. Remember, these were the verses that both Peter and Paul quoted in the book of Acts to prove that Jesus had been raised from the dead through his bodily resurrection and that Jesus was the one who did not see corruption. Did David's body see corruption? Yeah. I mean, you can still go today and I don't know if it's the real one or not, but I've been to Jerusalem and I've seen David's tomb. Maybe he's in there. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But David's dead and in the ground. I know that. His body's seen corruption. And it's obvious that when Peter and Paul were referring to this psalm, David was dead and that his body had, had decayed in the tomb, even they knew that in their day. But Jesus, Jesus did not see corruption. The Messiah did not see corruption. And when he rose from the dead on the third day, he had a real body, the Bible tells us. Jesus had a real body, a, a glorified body, that's what we're told. And for this reason, looking forward to what God would do through the Messiah, David said, I can face even death with a glad heart. And with a glad soul. And he could rest in the grave, he said. Rest in the grave in hope, knowing that one day he too would be resurrected and have a new and glorified body. And the bottom line is that because of our faith in Jesus, because of our faith in Jesus, we also have this same hope, right? A living hope. And the Bible teaches us that, that Jesus' resurrection, it teaches us that it was this type of first fruits, that Jesus was the first of many who were to come. For those of us who would follow, for those of us who would put our faith, our hope, our trust in Jesus as the one who is the conqueror of death. Jesus is our living hope. And so Jesus is the Lord of life. Jesus is the conqueror of death. And in the very last verse of this psalm, David points out that Jesus is this. And this is like the icing on the cake. This is what we're looking forward to, right? Jesus is the the joy of eternity. Think about heaven. And I think when we think about heavens, all kinds of imagery is conjured up in our mind, right? We may even think about loved ones who's gone before us. You know, we, we can remember passages of Scripture or, 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 or different pictures that we've seen of heaven. There's this professor. Well, let me read verse 11 first. Jesus, it says this, David says, he says, You will show me the path of life, and in your presence, in your presence, this fullness of joy. Remember, this is in the context of David said that, Man, my soul, I'm going to rest. You're not going to leave me in Sheol. But he says, you will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me tell you, that's what heaven is. And that's what David's speaking about. 
That's what heaven is. A professor of philosophy at Harvard University by the name of Alfred North Whitehead, he once asked a friend, he said, as for Christian theology, can you imagine anything more appallingly idiotic than the idea of, uh, than, the, than the Christian idea of heaven with its pearly gates and its streets of gold? Sad. But even though, you know, these things are a part of heaven, there, there is pearly gates and there, there is, there are streets of gold. Guys, the focal point of heaven is not the gates of pearl or the streets of gold or even, even the angels that are going to be up there, right? Or even us, the glorified saints. That's not the focal point of heaven. The central glory of heaven, the central joy of heaven is simply Jesus Christ. He's the joy of eternity. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to wrap it up with this. He's the joy of eternity. Heaven is about Jesus. And the path of life that Jesus, listen, the path of life that Jesus shows us on earth today will end in even greater life when we enter into heaven. And then we shall be in his presence and experience the fullness of joy and what the Bible says, pleasures forevermore. In his presence. And according to passages of scripture like Philippians chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 3, guys, we know that when we get to heaven, um, that we're going to have a glorified body. One that is free from sin, one that is free from corruption. And in these new bodies, the Bible says, this is another reason why Jesus is the joy of eternity. Our new bodies are going to be like Jesus' body, a glorified body. And we shall worship him and we shall serve him forever. There's pleasures forevermore, but we're going to worship him and serve him forevermore. And the pleasures of heaven will be far beyond any pleasures that we have ever known here on the earth. And as we enjoy the Lord and as we serve him, you guys, listen, we're not going to be restricted. We're not going to be encumbered by our own physical weaknesses or the consequences of sin. And it's so, and so magnificent are these glories of heaven that the Apostle Paul, we studied through the book of Revelation not, not many months ago, but the, the, excuse me, the Apostle John, he, he was so struggling to describe it in Revelations chapter 22 and 21, or 21 and 22, when he gives us a picture of what's going on there in, in, in heaven. It's like he had, to, he had to ransack human language just to find you know, qualified words to be able to describe it. And we know that the Apostle Paul, who says he was, he was caught up into the third heaven, he said, man, I, I, can't, I can't begin to tell you what I saw. He said it would be a crime to try to, an injustice to try to, 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 it wouldn't be able to do it justice to tell you with earthly language the things that are awaiting for us in heaven. So with this, I'll end with these questions. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Guys, we, we say he's our savior, and he is. But is he the Lord of your life? Have you accepted your inheritance? And are you making the most of it for his glory? Do you see the lines as pleasant things? Do you anticipate being with Christ, with Jesus in glory? Do you anticipate that? Do you look forward to that? And ultimately, is he the joy of your life today? For if he is not 
when will you then be prepared to enjoy him or how then will you be prepared to enjoy him for all of eternity? Is he the joy of your life today? Let's pray. And Father, we know ultimately that there is no joy apart from you. Lord, so many of us in so many different ways apart from coming to put our faith in you, Lord, have sought out this world to see how it might satisfy the needs that we have, the life that we're so desperate to acquire. And we put in the temporal things of this life that are passing away. And Lord, to really to have the temporary happiness that it brings come and go, come and go, and just to leave us in this place of want. And Lord, ultimately we know that you are, you're the joy of our life, the joy of all eternity. And I pray, God, that we would see whether we're in a time of need or in a time of abundance, God, that, that you're the only one that can preserve us. You're the only one that can sustain us, Lord. And I pray that we would... Once again, like David, in the midst of the goodness that you showed to us, Lord, that we would be humbled and that we would bring ourselves before your feet, Lord, and, and, and give you praise and thanks and look to honor you and glorify you in all, with all that you've given us and, and with all that, that we are in you. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here this morning that is struggling with being able to answer these questions in the positive way, Lord, that they would ultimately see you for how great you are, and Lord, that you're the only one that can meet the needs in their lives that they have. There's the only one that could sustain them. You're the only one, Lord, that can give them rest in their heart, in their mind, and in their soul. Anyone that can give them hope for the life that is to come. And Lord, that they would surrender to you today, that they would call out to you in prayer, ask to be forgiven, ask to be brought into your family. And Lord, with that, I'm grateful for this church family your most excellent ones in whom I delight, in whom you delight. You delight in us. And Lord, may we take pleasure in you and in one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.